Welcome to the Boost Podcast with Kelly Leonard. The podcast providing you with immediate access to tools, tips, and tactics to boost your business and career success. Build your brand, optimize relationships, obtain more leads, secure thought leadership space, and tap into new markets. It's the Boost Podcast. And now, here's Kelly Leonard. Hello, and welcome back to the Boost Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Leonard. Brooke Janasek is a fractional CMO and self-proclaimed digital nomad on a journey to intentionally live a joyful life. She's the founder of The Grow CMO, a fractional leadership solution for effective marketing growth that she founded in 2022 after two decades as a leading expert in the marketing industry. In our conversation, we talk about obtaining more leads and tapping into new markets. Hey, Brooke, welcome to the Boost Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Now for folks who are hearing your name for the very first time, tell us a little about yourself. Yeah, well, I am a born and raised Nebraskan that has been traveling the country this summer as a fractional CMO. So I have the ability to provide my clients with marketing expertise from anywhere in the world. So I thought, why not explore this great country? Awesome. Yeah, that that flexibility allows you to do that. So the life of an entrepreneur. Yes, yes. It's it's glamorous sometimes and not so glamorous others. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And so for someone who hears the term fractional CMO versus like an outsourced CMO, is there a difference between the two? You know, no one has ever asked me that question before, but um, one thing that I like to explain to people is the difference between a fractional CMO and a consultant. And I think, you know, to be honest, I think a marketer came up with the term fractional CMO because um, if you strip it down to it, we are CMOs who will come into an organization, whether they are a startup or an established organization, and provide marketing expertise for a fraction of the time at a fraction of the cost. So I do think that is synonymous with an outsourced CMO. I think the difference between a consultant and a fractional CMO is at the fractional CMO level, we do have that expertise, the decades of experience behind us or the life experiences behind us to provide that very high level strategic oversight and leadership. Whereas a consultant, I think, really can niche down to a specific discipline, maybe within marketing, like a social media consultant, for example. So that's how I like to explain the difference to my clients. Awesome. Thanks for that. And so I know messaging is a big part of what you do. So how do you typically support folks in getting clear with their messaging? I am a firm believer in the statement, ask the customer and they will tell you what to do. So I always start with, have you asked your customers what they think, what their perceptions are, what their needs are? And it doesn't have to be a very complicated survey. You don't have to invest tens of thousands of dollars into hiring a market research firm, but let's get crystal clear on what the needs are first so we can be crystal clear in what we say when we address those needs in our messaging. And I find oftentimes the simplest questions yield the best answers. Ah, okay. And so what, in addition to like, what do those questions look like? Like what exactly would you ask a customer? Yeah. So it depends on what the objectives are that we're trying to achieve. But I have two really good examples, um, real life examples that have just happened to me 
uh, lately as a consumer. One, um, and if you follow me, uh, follow me on LinkedIn. I talk about this quite a bit on LinkedIn. But the first one is, I had a um, consumer packaged good product that I consume, which is coffee. Um, they emailed me just to say, "Hey, Brooke, we have one question for you," and that was the subject line in the email. So I thought, "Oh, that's pretty compelling." I, I only, you know, need or have time to answer one question. And when you open it, it just said, "Do you use creamer in your coffee?" And it was yes or no. And I thought, how simple is that? And this is clearly because I'm a marketer, I understood what they were doing. This is clearly a market research question, but they're trying to determine, should they offer creamer (laughs) as one of their products? And, And it's just crazy how simple that was. And so that's kind of an example of how simple it can be. And the second one is I just signed up for a meal delivery service. They followed up with an email that just said, how did you hear about us? And they had nine options for me to select. And I know this sounds so almost duh, but it really needs to be that simple. Like just make it really easy for the consumer to provide you an insight. Don't make it complicated. They're going to bow out if it's a 10 question survey. And if there's too many options, they'll also bow out. So make it real simple. And so, and and I love that because it's, you know, it, it goes along the lines of less is more. And I also know that as an entrepreneur, oftentimes we feel like, oh, well, I only have this one opportunity to perhaps, you know, to really get some feedback or get insight from this individual. So I just want to ask them a zillion different questions. And so how do you, what does even the process look like to narrow down to such a simple yeah, to make it that simple? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will caveat that there is a time and place for an extended uh, qualitative uh, type of research where you can do focus groups and really dig into the uh, insights that you want or the emotional drivers. But if you're just trying to maybe prove um, the market demand for something or maybe A-B test a, a headline or something, that's when you can be a little bit more um, simple. But yeah, you it again goes back to the objective. So if we're going to do a huge product launch, maybe we do need to determine the market size, determine who our ideal customer profile is going to be. We might have to be a little bit more in depth. But again, if it's like we have a hunch sales are pointing to this, consumers are asking us to offer this this one product, then let's just go test the market with that one question to validate our hunches and move forward. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Now, one of the questions as you and I were preparing for this conversation, term that you use that I wasn't necessarily all that familiar with, performance marketing. Mm-hmm. And and so, and I don't know, maybe I'm showing you my ignorance, but I'm guessing if I have that question, other people may have that question. And so tell me more about like what what is performance marketing? Absolutely. That is a great question. So there is a dichotomy in business right now. And it right or wrong, it has happened where CEOs of organizations of large organizations have separated their marketing departments into two silos, either brand marketing or performance marketing. And I subscribe to the theory that these two need to work hand in hand, that there shouldn't be an either or that it should work together. So from a brand marketing perspective, that's how you feel about a brand. That's the emotions it evokes. How are we going to tell consumers who we are, or what we stand for? The performance marketing is more of the data-backed science side of marketing. So how many clicks did I get on an ad? How many? What was the open rate on my email uh, campaign that I sent out? Or how many um, sales can I attribute to this particular campaign? So there's um, this push and pull and a lot of 
rightfully so, the CEOs and CFOs focus more on the performance marketing because they're like, that's where my, I can tell I invested money in the market and I saw this return so I can measure my ROI. And the brand marketers say, yes, but you wouldn't have had that, you know, you wouldn't have had that success without the awareness of who we are. So that's where I strongly believe they need to work together hand in hand and you cannot have one without the other. Okay. Thanks for that. No, that's really helpful. And so for an organization, particularly because a lot of our listeners are smaller companies where they may not have those two distinct separate entities. And so I'd imagine in many instances, you have one individual who wears both of those hats. And so how does your answer change or or what does that look like um, when those two sort of the brand and then performance marketing need to come together to support the organization? Yeah, absolutely. So I have worn both of those hats in some of my uh, uh, years as a marketer. And so it always is this the same discussion, but it, it, I'm looking at the budget and saying, okay, how much of my budget do I need to allocate to the performance marketing tactics? So my Google AdWords or television or email campaigns. But then at the same time, you have to fill the top of the funnel. And so I'm always doing this push and pull of, have we put out... You know, for example, I'm just going to use this as an example, YouTube ads. Are we putting YouTube ads out there that are driving awareness of who we are and then supplementing it with a search campaign that once they see that Google, you know, ad pop up, they're like, oh, yeah, I just saw an ad for that or I just watched a piece of content for that. And now I know that this is the same brand. I have a lot of brands that and one that I worked for in particular that was expanding markets. They had the market cornered in one of these cities and were known by name. They were a household name. They move, you know, three hours South. No one knows who they are. And they just turned on performance marketing. They just turned on their Google AdWords and they're like, I don't know why we're not getting leads. And I said, it's because no one knows who you are. We have to reintroduce ourselves to this market. That's where the branding piece comes in. That's where we have to say, here's who we are. Here's what we stand for. Here's what we do. So it has to work a little bit harder, especially when you don't have that brand awareness. Okay. So then along those lines, let's say um, from a performance marketing perspective, you've been doing something for a while, you're getting decent results. How do you know when, you know what, this is still good. We, we want to stay the course and, you know, watch it, maybe watch our results improve even more or, Ooh, you know what? No, we need to pause and or pivot and, and start doing something else. Like, how do you know when what you're currently doing isn't necessarily working well Um, Because in certain instances, to your earlier point, it may be that, oh, I need to go back to brand and reimagine or reintroduce ourselves to the marketplace in order to get the output or the results that we're seeking. And so, so yeah, so how do you know when to make a change, like to try something new? Yeah, so I'm going to use just a digital example because that's an easy one for me to explain, but this is where you really get into the performance side where you're looking at specific metrics. So if we're looking at a Google campaign, for example, and I see that, and I apologize if I'm getting too technical, but I see that we have a really high impression share, meaning a lot of people have seen it. I don't want to necessarily throw more money at that because then, you know, there's a point of diminishing returns. Say I have high impression share, low conversion. That to me says, okay, people are seeing our ads, but there's something about it that's not resonating with them. So before I decide to pull out of that tactic, I'm going to go look at the creative and say, okay, is my my message isn't resonating for one reason or the other. So do I need to tweak it? Do I need to be more clear about who we are and what we do? 
or have I not effectively positioned ourselves as the solution to their problem? So that was first, or maybe I'm getting a really high click-through rate and then I'm not getting the actual conversion of a lead. Again, maybe they liked what they saw on the ad, they get to the landing page, they don't see what they like. So before I kind of you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. I will look at all of our creative first and tweak that. But if something is really, really tanking, I'm not getting any engagement at all. I'm not seeing any clicks. Okay, then there might be either a budget issue. I'm not putting enough money in the market or it might be a creative issue. Those are usually two levers I like to look at. The other thing I will say is this is just a different way of looking at it is I would always set my budgets where I would take 70% of what I was given from a budget and allocate it to tactics that I know have worked for us in the past. So from a data perspective, I'm going to look back at what has generated business and leads from us for us before allocate dollars there. I'll take 20% and hold it back for things that I want to try. Maybe something new that I want to try this year that maybe we haven't tried in particular within the four walls of our business, but I'm hearing out in the industry success, you know, TikTok might be an example of that right now. And then 10% I hold for contingency. Those little surprises that you're like, oh man, I forgot that we had to do this or, um, oh my gosh, you know, the CEO comes into your office and says, Hey, I signed up for, you know, I, I signed up for some sponsorship and I need, <laughs> I need it to come out of marketing's budget. <laughs> so that has happened before. So that's kind mm-hmm. of how I would allocate the budget as well. Um, marketing is really science and art, and there's a lot of science and a lot of math <laughs> looking at numbers more than probably people think or realize. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know way back when, like perhaps, well, not way back when, but pre COVID, as I reflect on different conversations around marketing and what is that magic number that folks should set aside, um, for marketing, has anything changed in terms of trends Um, the only trend that I can speak to is I was in, um, a home services, uh, franchise system for five years. And we would always say, if you're a brand new brand in the market, let's take eight to 10% of revenue and put that into marketing. Now, if you're a more established brand, we can drop that maybe to four to 6%. And the reason why is because again, you have that brand awareness people know who you are. And so your, your dollars can go further. I don't know what it is for other industries. So that's what I'm going to only be able to speak to, but I always based it off of revenue um, and not sales because I wanted to make sure that we had actualized the money and we were going to be able to spend it and have it to spend on marketing versus projected numbers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good, really good point. Thank you for Mm -hmm. that. Now, what, trends are you seeing, especially now, like sort of post COVID? um, Are there any particular marketing or brand or other trends that you have been seeing in the marketplace? I think the biggest thing right now, and it has just kind of started maybe during COVID, but content is queen. I, I will say content is queen, not king, because it, everybody is generating content. Everybody's creating content. And that is where you get the engagement and consumers want to engage with a brand. They want to identify, see themselves in the stories, be entertained, um, feel something. And it used to be some clever copywriting would get you there. And now 
everything is so engaging. We can watch a 15 second video clip and be moved to emotion just as quickly as if we read some long article in a, in a newspaper. So um, I don't know that it's necessarily a trend as I think that content is here to stay. Mm-hmm. And the more you lean into content creation, the better it's going to be for your brand. So then what about also with like, you know, everyone's talking about AI and chat GPT mm-hmm. and all these other tools. How has that I- impacted sort of approaches to marketing? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of chatter out there about chat GPT replacing jobs and taking writers out of jobs. And uh, I have used it quite a bit, to be honest, and I use it more as a tool to assist me and almost in a scalability tool versus a replacement. So it is just like input in input out. So if you put garbage into it, you're going to get garbage back out. So what I like to do is just say, okay, here's a paragraph that I wrote. For example, here's an email that I wrote, write me five compelling subject lines that I can choose from. So I give it the email that I wrote. So it knows, okay, this is what she's trying to get it across. And then it spits out five subject lines. Okay. That's, that's a useful way for me to kind of see, okay, which one is more compelling? Which one do I think has a, the best hook? Or I'll say, write me two. And then I can use that as an AB test for mm-hmm. marketing. So that's where I see it assisting. I don't, I don't see it replacing. It can't mimic the voice. So if you have, um, a very particular brand voice. If you're friendly, for example, or you want to be compassionate, you can tell it to write it in a compassionate tone, but it's not going to match what you've established and worked so hard to do from a branding perspective. So I think there's a place for it. I think it can help. Um, or you can even say, Hey, we're in the business of selling, uh, software as a service. Give me 35 blog ideas and it will just spit out 35 ideas. Great. You still need to go write those. I wouldn't suggest you can tell when things are written all by AI. It's very literally robotic, Um, but it's a great tool to help scale a business and make things more efficient, but not a replacement. I definitely agree. Absolutely. And I know, and as we're winding down our time together, I know you're a big advocate of failing fast. Mm -hmm. And so why, why do you um, promote for individuals, organizations to fail fast? I think at the, you know, at a very 30,000 foot view, if you boil it down, business is an experiment. Life is an experiment. And if you put something out there um, just to try it, and if you fail, you have data to know, okay, what went wrong or, okay, that didn't work and I need to adjust. But if you don't ever put anything out there, you're not going to have any information. So I say, all right, let's throw this email out there and see what happens. Okay, great. That didn't work, but at least we know nobody responds to this type of messaging. So I just said to a client today, he said, oh yeah, let's just do it. And I said, well, it's better than not having data. Like he goes, well, only 10 people are going to reply to this email. I said, it's better than zero. (laughs) So um, I think, you know, it's just, and if it doesn't work, okay, that was a low risk. We sent an email to 10 people. Like, you know, that wasn't a huge failure in, you know, on the grand scheme of things. So I just think the more chances you take, the quicker you're going to learn from them. And either way you can improve um, your approach. Absolutely. I definitely appreciate that. And so Brooke, um, if folks are listening and hearing your name for the first time and want to circle back to you, of course, they should check out your newsletter on LinkedIn. Aside from that, what's the best way for them to engage you in conversation or to even engage 
with you to, to so support them in their marketing needs. Yeah, absolutely. I truly am uh, so involved and active on LinkedIn. That would be the best place to find me. Or my website is thegrowcmo.co, uh, not .com, it's .co. So that would be another place to find me. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and insight today. Yes, thank you. Well, that concludes this episode of the Boost Podcast. Thank you again for listening in. If you don't mind, if you could like, subscribe, or share the podcast with a friend, I would greatly appreciate it. For more information on anything Boost related, you can visit our website at www.kellytleonard.com. <laughs>